Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. To start us out this morning, uh, I want to share with y'all a parable that I wrote. Are you nervous yet? (laughs) Somebody's excited. That's great. Um, We've been studying some of Jesus' parables as we've been going through the book of Matthew. If you've been around for a while, you know we've been kind of in and out of the book of Matthew for a few years now. Um, And I got inspired by Jesus' parables, so I decided to write one myself. I'm I'm sure it won't be as good as the ones Jesus wrote. Maybe it won't be good at all. This could be my first and last parable ever. So I don't know. Uh, You guys can let me know, but I want to share with you all a parable. You ready? Okay. In a certain place, a man and a woman got married. After about a year, the husband approached his wife and said to her, you know, I, I really love being married to you, but I don't really care much for your voice. In fact, if your voice stays the way that it is right now, I don't think I can stay married to you over the long haul. Let me know what you plan to do about changing your voice. A couple weeks later, he approached his wife yet again and said, I I really love being married to you, but I I don't much like your personality. In fact, if your personality stays as it is right now, I don't really think we can stay married in the long term. Let me know what you plan to do about changing your personality. A third time, the husband came to his wife and said, you know, I really, really love being married to you. But I don't care much for your height. In fact, if your height stays the way it is right now, I don't think I can stay married to you. Let me know what you plan to do about changing your height. The wife, who was of course unable to do very much to change her voice, her personality, or her height, even if she wanted to, insisted to her husband after these conversations that all of those things were the exact same as they always had been, that her voice and her personality and her height weren't any different than the day that they fell in love with each other. And the husband responded, well, maybe that's true, but I've grown tired of them. And unless you're willing to change them, I don't think our marriage is going to make it. So after pleading with her husband for a few more months, he eventually filed for divorce. The now ex-husband originally thought that he would get married again one day. Over the years, he dated a variety of women, some more interesting and attractive to him than others. But every time the relationships got serious with one of these women, he found himself becoming less and less sure of the relationship. He would think to himself, I mean, sure, I I really like this woman now, but will I like her a year from now? I I like her voice now, but it's a little bit high-pitched. I don't know if I can put up with that long-term. Uh, I I really like her personality now, but she really likes to laugh, and I feel like eventually I'm going to get tired of all the laughing. I'm going to want to be serious. I really like her height now, but she's a little on the short side, and I just wonder if my neck's going to get really tired from hunching over to talk to her through the years. So eventually, he came up with a solution. 
He would date multiple women at the same time. He would date some of them whose voices he liked, some of them whose personalities he liked, and some of them whose height he liked. He began piecing together in his mind essentially this super girlfriend, an imaginary woman made up of all the best traits of all his simultaneous girlfriends. But as soon as each girlfriend found out what he was doing, they broke up with him, of course, as they should. So he grew older and older, more and more isolated, more and more frustrated that he could never find the perfect woman. And then he died. <laughs> what do y'all think? Thank you. I wasn't really looking for applause, but thank you. Uh, decent parable, maybe. Uh, I, I know it's kind of a bummer at the end, but if you've read some of Jesus's parables, some of them ended on quite the dark notes. So I thought maybe that could work. Uh, more pointedly, though, how awful is this guy from the parable? Like, he's the stuff of nightmares, right? Like, this, I've got a daughter, and I'm already thinking of how to warn her about this type of guy in the story. So he's a pretty horrible dude. Uh, but here is where I should also remind you of what parables were meant to do. You see, when Jesus told parables in the Gospels, they, they generally weren't just cute stories to illustrate an interesting point. They were meant to evoke a reaction, much, much like the reaction that many of you had at various points in that story. They were sometimes meant to expose wrong attitudes and postures and uh, about the kingdom of God and what it's truly like. And sometimes those parables were aimed at doing that in the very people listening to the parable. In other words, when Jesus told parables, you had to be very careful about what you were feeling in response to the parables because it was at least possible that the parable was about you. So now that I've prepared you for that, here's the point of my parable. You ready? That parable is about people's posture, not necessarily towards dating or towards marriage or romantic relationships, though that might be true as well. It's about people's posture towards the church, more specifically about their involvement in a church. I think some people view church a lot like the husband in the story viewed relationships. When we come around to church, we, we view it a little bit like a negotiation, at least a lot of us do. So, so we say, well, I really like this church, but they're going to need to get better at X, Y, and Z if I'm going to stick around long term, which eventually gives way to what I've often called a buffet approach to church. So you just go down the line, you pick a little bit of this church, a little bit of that one, teaching from here, music from here, programming from here, community from here, building this super church in our minds made up of all the best parts of different churches or different podcasts that we listen to online. But all my cards on the table, I think that approach to church actually shortchanges both us as individuals and it shortchanges the churches that we're a part of. I think it leaves all of us more lonely and more isolated as a result of doing it. And I think there's actually a better way out there of relating to the church. And that's what I want to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 
If you've been around, you know that we've been in a series called Church Matters uh, for about the past month and a half or so. We've been talking at length about the importance of gathering with other followers of Jesus on a regular basis, the importance of the gathered church. And we've talked about a lot of the things that we do when we get together in person as the church. We, we teach, we sing, we give, we eat, we serve, all of these different things that are vitally important to our relationship to Jesus. But this morning, I want to close out this series by taking it all one step further than all of that. I want to discuss how this morning to fully understand why church matters, you need not to just regularly be around a church, you need to belong to one. Now, I've chosen that word belong very, very intentionally. That is the language that the scriptures often use, especially in the New Testament, when, when it talks about our relationship with a church. It talks about it using the language of belonging. It doesn't primarily talk about us attending a church or being around a church. Uh, it doesn't talk about us liking or even loving a church. Rather, it talks about us belonging to one. For instance, take a look with me at Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. We'll read that passage one more time together. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all of the others. Each member belongs to all the others. So here's what's happening in this passage. At this point in the book of Romans, which is actually a letter to an ancient church, Paul has just laid out 11 full chapters of dense, theologically rich teaching on humanity and the problem with humanity and sin and what Jesus has done about all of that in the cross. And then at the beginning of chapter 12 in Romans, he transitions to talking about the practical implications of all of those realities. And here, one of the implications he lays out is how we think about our individual relationship to the church. He says that none of us should think of ourselves more highly than we ought to but that we should think of ourselves with, with sober, with accurate judgment. We should understand that we are a part of a body, which is one of Paul's favorite metaphors for talking about the church. He says, just like a human body has many different parts and all of those parts do different things, so also we should understand that as followers of Jesus, we are a part of a body. And that implies that each of us belongs to the others. Being a part of a church, at least as God intended it, means belonging to that church. To put it another way, there is reciprocity in our relationship with the church. We need it, and it needs us. We need others, and others need us. And without that reciprocity in that relationship, that mutual commitment to belonging to one another, the church cannot be what it was meant to be. And individually, we can't become who God made us to be. 
To, to help further unpack this idea, I want to teach you about two different types of relationships. You may have heard this before. The first type of relationship is what we might call a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship. So this is exactly what it sounds like. It's a relationship where I am a consumer. So I personally have a consumer relationship with my grocery store, Kroger. Notice I didn't say Kroger's East Tennesseans because it's not Kroger's, it's Kroger. I just felt like I needed to say that while I had a captive audience. It's Kroger, singular, there's no S. Anyway, I have a relationship with Kroger and it's a consumer relationship. I shop at Kroger because there's one close to my house and they offer decent products at low prices. But the reason I know it's a consumer relationship is because if Kroger all of a sudden moved a lot farther from my house, or if all of a sudden they decided to double all of their prices, I would let Kroger know that I have decided to see other people, right? Because it's a consumer relationship. My relationship with Kroger is based on the quality of services that they provide me, the consumer. And listen, a lot of relationships are meant to function as consumer relationships, but not all relationships are meant to function that way. Certain relationships are meant to be covenant relationships, covenant relationships. So imagine with me for a moment that I start treating my wife, Anna, like I treat Kroger. Imagine with me that I say to Anna, okay, here's the deal. I agree to live with you and share a bank account with you and raise kids with you, but I expect a certain level of service in return. I expect that you treat me like this, that you serve me like this, that you meet my expectations like this. And obviously, if anything about our relationship becomes more difficult or more inconvenient for me, you will understand if I need to explore other options. Would you consider that to be a healthy marriage or an unhealthy marriage? unhealthy. Yeah, because there's something about us that just knows that's not how marriage was meant to work. That's not the nature of the marriage relationship. A, a marriage is not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant relationship. A healthy marriage is not primarily about the other person meeting your needs in satisfactory sorts of ways. It's about you committing to the other person for life, which is why we say things in our wedding vows like in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, right? It's about committing to loving the other person regardless of how difficult or inconvenient it may be at times. You don't enter into marriage as a consumer you enter into marriage as a covenant partner. Here's where that connects to our topic for this morning. The Bible actually talks about our relationship to church much more like a covenant relationship than a consumer one. Remember Paul's language from Romans chapter 12. He said, each member belongs to the others. Not each member maintains a loose commitment to the others until they find something better, belongs to the others. Once we have committed to a church family, we are not paying customers evaluating our options. We are partners. We're in a covenant type of relationship. 
members of a body. We need the church, and the church needs us. And when we neglect to interact with the church in that way, when we treat the church like it is a dispenser of religious goods and services, like our spiritual grocery store, so to speak, we miss out on a lot of things that God intended the church to be. But when we see the church rightly, as God intended, when we understand it not as a consumer relationship, but as a covenant relationship, that changes quite a few things for the better. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to lay out for you four things that I think change when we start belonging to a church. When we see the church the way the scriptures talk about the church, it shifts certain mindsets in us for the better. Four things that belonging does in the life of a follower of Jesus. First thing, belonging changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view ourselves. So this is actually what Paul is trying to get across in the first part of that Romans 12 passage that we read earlier. So he says this in verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of or view yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So the unhealthy alternative to seeing yourself as a member of a church body where you belong, Paul suggests is actually thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. Having an incorrectly arrogant view of yourself, not having an appropriate amount of self-awareness, in other words, that is one thing that belonging to a community of Jesus followers is actually meant to mediate in us. It's meant to give us better self-awareness. When we belong to one another, it helps us see ourselves with sober judgment, in Paul's words. It helps us see ourselves more accurately than we would have otherwise. So there's a quote by a guy named Joseph Hellerman that I think elaborates on this idea really, really well. Uh, he wrote a book that we reference a lot around here called When the Church Was a Family. In that book, he puts it like this. Spiritual formation, and by that he just means the process of growing and maturing as a follower of Jesus. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow, and notice this next word, self-understanding. And they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wonderlust, but we never seem to get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. There's a lot to think about in that quote, obviously. I find the agricultural imagery he uses at the end particularly helpful. So think about this. 
What happens if you continually pull up a plant by its roots over and over again and continually replant it in different places? Generally speaking, it dies, right? If you do it enough over a long enough period of time. But even if it doesn't die, it certainly never grows very much, right? Because for plants to grow, they need time for their roots to sink down deep into the soil. And generally, the longer that they get to do that, the stronger and more vibrant that plant becomes. That's how it works. So let me ask you this, why would we think that it's any different with spiritual growth? Why would we think that continually digging up our roots and replanting them somewhere else every six months, every year, would be good for us over the long haul. But on the other hand, if we stick around the same group of people for an extended amount of time and get to know them and sink our roots deep, we start to see ourselves with sober judgment as a result. We start to see ourselves more accurately as a result. We, we allow people to notice and point out our blind spots. We allow people to encourage us in the things that we're doing well that we don't even realize we're doing well, and we become formed by all of that over time into who God made us to be. I've seen this play out in my own life. So before we started City Church, I served on staff with the same group of guys for about eight years in total. Some of them knew me better than I think anybody else had up until that point in my life. And because of that, they were able to speak directly and openly with me about things that I was doing well and things I wasn't doing well. They could identify and speak into not just my actions, but many of the motives underlying my actions because they knew me. They had spent enough time around me to know me well, and because I was rooted in that community for that many years, and they took the effort to do that, I grew tremendously in my view of myself during those years. To be honest, when I first came around those guys, I thought of myself very highly, more highly than I ought to, in Paul's words. I, I thought I was pretty talented, I thought I was pretty special, I thought I was really, really gifted, and at the end of those years, I saw myself a lot more accurately. It took out some of the arrogance that was in there because they were able to get to know me well enough that it changed how I viewed myself for the better. And I'm telling you, that is what belonging to a genuine community of Jesus followers can do for you too if you give it the time necessary for it to happen. It changes how we view ourselves. Second thing that belonging changes in us, I think it also changes how we see our problems. How we see our problems. So belonging to a community shifts how we see many of our problems and our difficulties in life and how we see those of others. So Galatians 6 uses the language of bearing one another's burdens. I think that's really helpful language. Bearing one another's burdens. So that, that can mean a lot of different things, right? It could mean life circumstances, suffering, financial hardship, losing a job, you name it, right? It could be a variety of things. But if it is a true burden, the scriptures teach us that we should look for ways to help shoulder that burden for one another. 
So a couple in my life group recently had a baby. And up until about two weeks ago, it looked like the husband was going to have to be deployed for a few months right after their daughter was born. And I don't know how much you know about the first few months of becoming a parent, but that is a lot for a new mom to have to navigate by herself, right? Like almost too much. Having to do that alone is a type of burden. So the ladies in our life group had already begun working up a schedule so that each of them could take turns staying the night at this new mom's house to help her navigate the first few months of parenting so that she wouldn't have to do it alone. And they did that because they saw her situation not just as her problem to solve, but as their problem to help solve. That's what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. Uh, in our church at this point, there have been so many stories of people helping each other bear financial burdens that I can't even begin to keep up with them all. Life groups chipping in to buy cars for people who need cars, giving money to do major repairs on people's houses that needed those repairs done. Uh, just a month ago, my wife and I were getting ready to rally people to help support a family in our life group that they were going through something financially. And as we were preparing to help them, that very family that needed help decided to rally our life group to help me and my wife meet a financial need. All kinds of stealth burden bearing happening in my life group. But this is what it looks like for us to bear one another's burdens, right? It's to see other people's problems, not just as their problems, but as a burden for us to help bear, for us to step in and help with. This is the type of thing that Galatians is talking about. When someone is going through something heavy and difficult, we don't just say to them as followers of Jesus, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, I'll pray for you. Definitely pray, prayer is great, but also, if you're able to at all, help. Help. Chip in and help. That is what belonging looks like. I love the way the book of 1 John puts this. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Notice this next part. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, I do want to offer a quick clarification on this one before moving on, because I think this is really important. Galatians 6 does not say, insist that other people bear your burdens. It says, look for ways to bear other people's burdens. So just so we're clear, if you heard that instruction and immediately started thinking of all the times that your life group or your community didn't meet your needs in the way that you wanted them met at the time, you actually read the passage backwards. Burden bearing doesn't work when it is demanded from others towards us. It only works when it is freely offered from us towards others. So I'd encourage you right now, just as we're talking about this, what needs exist in your life group that you can help meet? What burdens exist in the community of Jesus followers around you that you can help shoulder for them? Chances are there, there are some there. You just have to do the work to notice them and to consider how you might be able to help. Okay, next. Belonging also changes how we navigate conflict. It changes how we navigate conflict. I'm going to try not to spend too long on this one because we talk about it a lot at City Church. 
but we touched on it a couple weeks ago in the sermon about communion, so I just wanted to mention it this morning. It changes the way we view conflict. So the human tendency, most any time there is conflict or tension in a relationship, is to push away from the relationship, right? It's just what we instinctively do as human beings. Someone hurts us, so we emotionally detach from relationship with them. Someone annoys us, so we avoid them whenever possible. Someone is difficult to be around, so we just choose to not be around them anymore. And to make matters worse, sometimes we think we are completely justified in responding that way, because that's what the world teaches us to do. It feels completely normal to respond that way in our society. And many of us actually instinctively do this in relation to the church that we're a part of. I think Joseph Hellerman is helpful again on this. He says this, running away, and by that he means from conflict or tension, it does provide immediate relief from the awkwardness of a hurtful relationship. It is the easy way out in the short term, and there are legitimate reasons to leave a local church. But People who leave to escape the hard work of conflict resolution are often destined to repeat the cycle of relational dysfunction with another person in another church somewhere else in town. I have known people that just bounce from church to church every year or two. They stay there long enough until they start experiencing some tension or some conflict with people there, and then as soon as they do, sure enough, they're off to the next church. And listen, I get it. Bailing in difficult moments of relationships is by far the easiest thing to do. But that does not mean it's the best thing to do, particularly for followers of Jesus. For instance, I want you to contrast that mentality of bailing on relationships with something like what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with. Do what? Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you hear the difference, the contrast in how Paul says we should navigate relationships as followers of Jesus with the way the world often trains us to navigate relationships? It's pretty much a total 180 from each other, right? And there's a reason for that difference. As followers of Jesus, we believe that that Jesus went to the cross not just to save us from our sin, but to knit us together into a family. And because of that, we do not look for the easy way out of those relationships that Jesus knit together with his own body and blood. We look at the other person, even if we're in conflict or tension with them, and we don't see them primarily as an an adversary or as an opponent or as a nuisance or a bother to our life. We see them as a brother or sister that Christ died for, which means that severing the relationship with that person is a last resort, if that. It's not the first inclination. Belonging changes the way that we navigate relationships with one another, and specifically the way that we navigate conflict with each other. Finally, last point, 
Belonging changes the way that we relate to Jesus. It changes the way that we relate to Jesus. So Titus chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament, says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people, that's plural, a group of people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. A people, multiple, a group of people. So we say often, especially here in the South, I hear this terminology a lot, we say that Jesus is our personal savior, right? You've probably heard that language if you've been in Tennessee for very long. Jesus is our personal savior. And in a sense, that's absolutely true. Jesus is a personal savior, deeply personal, in fact. But we also need to understand desperately that Jesus did not die to save a bunch of isolated individuals for himself. He died to redeem for himself a people, a family, a reconciled group of people who are his very own. That's what Titus chapter 2 tells us. And when you belong to a church, truly belong to one, you begin understanding that a lot more clearly about Jesus. You begin to see God's people, the church, not as an optional addition to your faith, but as a necessary integral part of it. Not as something that we can choose to participate in when we like, need a little bit of an extra spiritual boost from time to time, but a necessary good as something God has put into place for our benefit so that we might more fully understand what it means to follow Jesus. When we neglect to belong to a church, we are actually boxing ourselves out of encouragement and growth and maturity and a means of grace in our lives, among many other things. But when we see the church rightly, when we see community rightly as something to belong to, we also begin to see Jesus more clearly as a result. We begin to see him and understand him not just as our savior, but as our brother's savior, our sister's savior. We begin to see that God doesn't just care about our personal holiness, he cares about our interpersonal relationships as well. So here's my pitch to you this morning. Probably not going to sound much like a pitch, I'm not good at the sales pitch thing. So just a fair warning, here's my not so good pitch. If you are here at City Church just thinking that we might provide a slightly better church experience than your last one. Slightly more interesting teaching, slightly better music, slightly better programming, any of that. If that's why you're here, I'm going to save you some time and say that you might want to go ahead to the next church. There are lots of churches in Knoxville that do a fantastic job of any and all of those things, much better than we do. So if that's why you're here, I'll give you a list of places to go. Like, I, I will suggest to you a place that might be a better fit for you. But if you are here because you want to live in close-knit relationships with other followers of Jesus like the scriptures call us to, if you're here because you want to sink your roots deep into long-term friendships that can change you and change us and ultimately change the world for the better, if you want to, together with us, to become the very hands and feet of Jesus to a broken world, if you're here not just to attend or consume, but to belong, if that's what you're after, 
then hop on in and let's do this thing together. Let's make it happen. Because that is precisely why the church of Jesus Christ exists. That is precisely what God designed his church to be. That's what it looks like to be the church. And that is why church matters. So if that's you, and if you want to belong here, I'll just end by making it super practical for you. If you're asking the question, okay, I want to belong here, how do I do that? Two steps for you to take, if you haven't already, to begin belonging here at City Church. The first is join a life group. Being a part of a life group is where a lot of this stuff starts. That's where you can actually know others and be known by others in a way that creates and reinforces belonging among you. We've actually got a life group basics class happening downstairs in the fellowship hall right after the gathering. If you've got 45 minutes to spare, you can literally go to the class today. You can get involved in a life group. It's super easy to get connected to one. But that's one solid step towards belonging to our church family. The second one is this. Take the city church class. Take the city church class. If you want to make it official and say, this is the church that I want to belong to, the way that we do that is through something called church membership. To become a member, you go through a three-week class that covers the basics of who we are as a church. At the end, you have the opportunity to sign the membership covenant and become an official part of city church. The date for the next class is not set yet. It'll probably be sometime early next year. There's an interest form that you can fill out over at citychurchknox.com membership. You can fill that out. We'll shoot you a link as soon as the next dates get set for the class. Um, real quickly on this one, though, uh, because I get this question a lot, uh, you might be thinking, okay, I do feel like I belong here. Why do I need to go through a class and sign something just to say that I belong? Like, that seems superficial. Why do I need to go through those steps? And I understand the question. I really, really do. Uh, I would maybe, though, flip the question back around and say, if you truly are committed to being here over the long term, why would signing your name to a page make that big of a difference, right? Like, it's a, it's a little bit like the boyfriend who's been dating a girl for five years, and he's like, baby, we don't need a marriage license for me to say that I'm committed to you. And eventually, if she's smart... She's going to go, well, wait, if you truly are committed to me, why would a marriage license be that big of a deal to you? So it, it's a little bit like that. I get that it can feel weirdly formal to sign and say, hey, I belong to this church. But I would also say it helps us know who we're responsible for caring for and shepherding. It helps us make sure that you don't fall through the cracks, that you're not struggling and nobody follows up with you or checks in with you. There's actually tremendous value in letting leaders of a local church know I'm a part of this body and I want to be cared for as if I'm a part of this body. So I would just encourage you to think about it along those lines. Those are the two steps you can take. Join a life group, take the city church class, and I'll just add, uh, I, I don't present those as like choose your own adventure. I think it's really most helpful to do both, right? So it's not like pick A or B. Uh, both of them ultimately are great. You can do them in either order. If you want to hop in a life group and kind of check things out more in detail and then become a member later, that's great. Or you can take the city church class first, kind of an informational thing. It'll give you more information about who we are as a church. And then maybe you join a life group after that. But either way, those are ways to say, I belong here. I want to be committed to belonging to this group of people. 
Two very doable, practical things if you want to take the next step. So we're going to respond this morning by going to the tables together and taking communion. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, as we do that, we are remembering and celebrating that Jesus went to the cross, just like we said in Titus 2, to purify for himself a people eager for good works, a people who belong to him and people who belong to each other. So as we sing... If that's true of you, if that's true of your life, your heart posture, you are invited to come to the table on your own or even better with a group of people that you belong to and take communion and remember what Jesus accomplished to make that possible. Let me pray for us and we'll do that.